Welcome to the latest edition of the Mind Gut Conversation podcast, a place to learn about breakthroughs in the science and practice of health, mind-body interactions, the microbiome, food, and the environment. Today, I have the great pleasure to talk to Dr. David Montgomery and Dr. Anne Bickley, co-authors of the new book, What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. David is a professor at the University of Washington and an internationally recognized authority on geomorphology. He is a MacArthur Fellow and a finalist for the Wilson Literary Writing Award. He has been a prolific author and has published several books, including a trilogy about soil health, microbiomes, and farming, which includes The Hidden Half of Nature and Growing a Revolution. Anne is a biologist and environmental planner who has published articles in Nautilus, Natural History, and Smithsonian. She has co-authored several books with David. I've been truly inspired by their books and some of their presentations and widely acknowledged their work in my own books and I've been looking forward to this conversation. Welcome to the show, Anne and David. These books are heavy on technical details, but also really enjoyable to read. So. Um, the latest one that we're going to be talking about this today is initially when you read this, you, you probably don't exactly know what that means, what your food ate. And um, I would highly recommend this to anybody who is interested in, in, in health and the ongoing discussions about, uh, uh, you know, the healthy gut and diet and various um, ways that we can improve our, our, our health through dietary interventions. So I want to start this conversation with a really general question, and then we can go from there. So you, you lay this out in multiple details, um, but what's the main problem? If, if you could say this in one sentence, what's the main problem about our food supply? Ooh. Let me try the one sentence version. You do your one sentence. Right. I'll do How about mine. if we each do a one sentence version? Because we don't always agree on everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say uh, the main problem with our food supply these days is not so much how much we grow, but it's what we're growing and how we're doing it and how that ripples into the effects on the health of the land and the health of ourselves. Is this something, so like in my, you know, uh, in my book and, 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 and in my interviews, I always emphasize basically the same points. I mean, there's, there's kind of three things you have to think about in terms of diet. One is what you eat, which most people concentrate, concentrate on. Another one is where the food comes from and how it's processed. And the third one, when do you eat it? So this whole mm -hmm. issue about, you know, can you, can you nibble on something 24 hours a day or does that make a difference? And um, so your, your focus on the, this, this tremendous impact of where, it, where the food comes from, it's it's not something that most people think about. I mean, most people think about organic, the discussion about organic food, but that really is just touches on the, on, on, on the surface of a much bigger underground invisible problem. And, um, you know, the, the main issues that, that you've laid out in, in, in your earlier books and this one is, is really has to do with modern agriculture and, and how it's changed from taking advantage of the um, innate ability of the soil and, and nature to produce healthy foods and substituted it with, with, with chemicals um, 
maybe if, you know if you want to say so this whole issue about chemical agriculture and i mean how this has has affected both the soil but also the the nutrients phytonutrients within the plants yeah yeah let me i was just thinking so you know in your field and and across nutrition generally emerin people talk a lot about the western diet and its woes and its effects and impacts on our health. And modern agriculture has a version of the Western diet. It's a set of practices, not, not so much you know, focused on um, food per se, but it's a set of practices that um, profoundly affect and mostly in a negative way, the health of crops and animals and it's, it's basically kind of three things that, that you could, uh, you know, I think a lot of, most people probably on your podcast are not agricultural kind of specialists. They're more on microbiome, gut and human health. And so that's why I'm thinking of this. And so the Western diet in modern agriculture is routine intensive tillage, which is the same thing as plowing the soil over and over again, multiple times a season. It's growing um, our crops in particular with a lot of synthetic fertilizers. And then the third part of that, you know, sort of Western diet is using um, a lot of really toxic chemicals to deal with pests and pathogens. And sure, you can grow crops with those methods, just like people can live on a Western diet. There's a lot of us living on a Western diet. And there's a lot of crops grown under those three sets of practices. But you know, you look at the health of people on the Western diet and it's not great. And then you look at the health of crops under those combined you know, three types of practices. And um, what we end up with is in, you know, this is what some of the research that we go into in the book is you end up with crops that have lower levels of phytochemicals. So these are these, you know, so-called secondary metabolites that plants make. And what's interesting to me is these, these secondary metabolites at one time were thought to be plant waste products. They were thought to be throwaway things that the plant was making to get rid of things that the plant body didn't need. And then as time has gone on and as our understanding has increased, it's like, Oh no, it's exactly, we have a whole chapter on this in the book called Overlooked Gems. And it's about phytochemicals, what they do in the green body of a plant and all the things that we're learning that they also do in the human body. So one of the biggest impacts of modern agriculture is that levels of phytochemicals in our fruits and vegetables and in our animal products in meat and in dairy, beta carotene would be a primary example in meat and dairy, um, they're lower. They're lower than, um, than we should be willing to accept. And what we know about these things is that it's, it's sort of, it's a bit in the realm of clean air when, when people say, oh, we should have our air clean. And it's like, well, how clean? As clean as possible, because anytime we're breathing in particulates, we know that's bad for our health. And so likewise with you know, plant and animal foods, if these are suffused with an abundance of phytochemicals, we know more is better. And, and plants are not gonna produce so many phytochemicals that it's either you know, bad for them, you know, and, and so therefore you know, we're taking in levels that you know, are good for our health. 
that's kind of kind of a long answer there, but and as part of the answer, because because the other part, of course, is that what those till practices of intensive, regular, repeated tillage and the over-application of soluble forms of fertilizers, generally the synthetic ones, uh, do is it disrupts microbial symbioses, uh, the, the partnerships that have long evolved over the 450 million year history of plants on land. They evolve partnerships with life forms in the soil, bacteria and fungi mostly, but not just, um, that benefited the health of both. The plants helped to provide food for the soil microbes. The microbes helped to provide uh, mineral micronutrients to the plants that were essential in plant defense and in enzyme production. And that translates into, if you disrupt those microbial symbioses, it can reduce the, the transferal of, um, of nutrients, of mineral elements out of the soil and into crops, and that reduces the supply that ultimately gets into us. Why, why has this not uh, received more, or, or does this not receive more attention? I mean, there's, as you mentioned in your, in your book as well, um, you know, if you go to Amazon, there's, your, there's a flood of books about, uh, you know, different types of diet, and you have to omit this one. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, I think Mike, Michael Pollan once called this a national eating disorder, uh, that the people no longer know uh, have 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 lost his natural ability or the, the body's wisdom, as you call it, mm -hmm. <clears throat> of what's what's good for you. I mean, animals know it; they can select about from hundreds of different plants and herbs. Um, I think at some point humans knew it, but it was reinforced by cultural habits, long-standing cultural habits, like indigenous people. Mm -hmm. But it seems like we've completely lost that ability. I mean, and it's it's getting worse. There's, there's no in my opinion, there's no end in sight because people want to publish books and they come up with another topic that has not been covered yet. And but somehow these this this close relationship between soil health, soil microbial health, plant health, and, and human health has not really been on the forefront of this of this discussion. Um, why do you think that is? Yeah. I think there's a couple a couple of reasons that that contribute to that, and, and Anne may add to this. But I think one of the the primary ones is that the world of science for the last hundred years has in, has increasingly splintered into disciplinary specialties. You know, I have a disciplinary specialty. I encourage all scientists to have a disciplinary specialty. But what we have not been doing a lot of is standing back and synthesizing between disciplines and trying to look at the connections. So in the book, what we try and do is draw. You know, what is it about the way we treat the soil in agriculture and agronomics that influences what gets into crops? How does that then influence the health of the crop? How does that what's in those crops influence what is then in animal products, um, meat and dairy? And then how do those things then influence human health? And so that's going between, you know, at a minimum of four or five disciplines trying to connect the dots. Um, and we've also in, in agriculture for you know, virtually the last century, primarily in the research world, emphasized yield. The concern has been feeding the world, and that translated into growing lots of calories. And you know, modern agriculture is very good at that. Um, but the question, of course, now that, that we're trying to shine a light on is, well, is it time to not only feed the world, but to try and nourish the world and, and think about what is actually in the food that we're growing which if you trace it backwards, leads you to how we do it in terms of how we treat the soil. Um, and, and the third piece of the, the, the answer to your question, I think, is that in thinking about, you know, what is it about a diet that makes for good health? 
the nutritional world has tended to emphasize those things that are necessary for survival. And you, the things like the phytochemicals that Anne has been talking about are more, they're more like the things that we need to maintain the health of our body over the long haul. So it's kind of things that we, we need, you know, perhaps not a lot of, but a regular supply of. And frankly, you know, our eye just, our collective eye was just not on the ball in terms of those kinds of compounds being in our food and what it might mean for our health if we reduced their amounts. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, from in, in, in this same area, um, there's clearly, you know, now with the news, for example, that what's happening with the biggest wheat grower in the world, the Ukraine, you know, how much of that is being destroyed. And this is going to have this ripple effect on, on, on African countries in Africa where there is starvation and undernutrition still sort of the main, I mean, really dealing with two problems in the modern world. One is this undernutrition and the overnutrition. And then maybe a third part is the deficient nutrition, which, you know, which, which we deal with here as well. Um, but it still seems, I mean, I've, I've recently seen this advertisement on, um, on, on BBC TV, um, this series of, I'm not sure what it was called. I mean, how to feel, uh, how to feed the world. Oh. Uh, I think it's sponsored by Corteva, one of those food conglomerates, you know, and and it's the advertisement for that, the commercial for that all talked about, uh, you know, plants are gonna be genetically engineered to have higher uh, content of, of macronutrients. So on the same uh, area of land, you cannot produce, you know, so the yield goes further up with, with the same. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, quite honestly, in the, in the international discussion and political conversation, people are still a lot more concerned about feeding the world, and, and that may become actually a bigger problem, you know, if it's, I think we're, we're sort of, with climate change, we're definitely at risk of having a huge problem with, with feeding the world, so how, how do you deal with that challenge? <clears throat> Yeah, it, it, go ahead. Okay, well, part of that is thinking about the time frame over which to frame the question, because uh, one of the things that I think is important to that is that we not only have to feed the world today, we have to keep doing it into the future. And one of the key points, you know, in the book, we talk about the health of the land and the health of people. And the key, I think, to feeding the, the world well into the future rests in the health of the land. And we can superimpose technology on top of that. But one of the problems that we've had in the past half century is that many of the technologies we've introduced or come to rely on actually degrade the health of the land, which means we come to rely on inputs which themselves are not resilient as the case with fertilizer is showing in Ukraine today. I mean, there's the problem of, you know, of, of people destroying the harvest that is helping to feed the world and that's just a criminal act. But there's also the disruption of the flow of, um, of nitrogen fertilizers that many of the world's farmers have come to depend on to grow their own crops. And that's not a very resilient system. And so one of the arguments we make in the book is that the health of the land can translate into resilience for agriculture. Um, and one of the big myths, I think, in modern agriculture is that we can't produce comparable yields to today with more regenerative techniques. Now, if somebody engineers crops that like, you know, grow 10 times more, you know, that could that could all change. Technology is an amazing um, thing. Um, but the health of the land really is the foundation for sustaining the long-term productivity of agriculture. And actually, the first book that we wrote on, on soil was called Dirt. You know, 
back in 2007 looked at how past societies, which did not have modern technology, <laughs> degraded their land enough that it undercut their long-term survival. So the first question I always ask to that is, you know, what time frame are we talking about? Because if we're talking about hundreds of years, we've got to take care of the land. But you also give examples in your book of um, indigenous societies or traditional societies who have avoided this mistake, who have actually developed techniques of, of, of regenerative um, agriculture. And um, why, why has that not been adopted? Is, is it just because? Yeah, I think in part, these indigenous practices are, um, they're not about devising products to sell to farmers. These indigenous practices are just that, they're behaviors. Mm. And so when you have you know, a behavior that's been innovated and pioneered and found to work under a particular set of environmental conditions, you pretty much have your whole toolbox right there. It's, it's the practices. And if you wanna take those practices and uh, say, you know, practices out of West Africa and transport them to Iowa or Ukraine or something, it's just, it's not gonna work. You're dealing with really different environmental conditions. And yet you could modify and adapt those practices to your own local conditions. And again, that's not the selling of a product to a farmer. It's, it would be farmers plus scientists figuring out, oh, what are the practices for the conditions in you know, the American Midwest or in the steppes of um, Eurasia? So that's, that's really different. A big agro um, chemical company, I think they probably could sell education and behavior change, but they're more used to selling products and technology. And, and so I think that's in part why some of these um, I call them sort of, you know, traditional or ancient practices that they've withstood the, the, the test of time. And now we know about the science, some of the, you know, down to the molecular and cellular level with respect to, you know, the plant rhizosphere, it's, it's you know, equivalent to the gut microbiome. We know why these things are working. We know how plants are interacting with microbes. And you, you could be um, you know, making products or doing things to support and enhance that rather than uh, completely sort of ignore it and mess it and mess it up. And, and the, the other element of that is that it, in many um, past societies, they have adopted, you know, sort of two out of the three sort of key elements of what appears to us to define a more regenerative approach to farming. And those three elements are don't disturb the soil, always keep something growing, a living root growing in the soil to, to, to help feed the microbes in the, uh, in the soil and to grow a diversity of crops. And that, that translates into no-till cover crops and crop rotations in terms of modern practices. And crop rotations and cover crops are not new ideas. I mean, those are old ideas. They've been adopted by many societies around the world because they work to help to sustain fertility. What I think is really new is the idea of trying to combine that with minimal disturbance of the soil. So, you know, not digging it up, not plowing it. Um, and that's, it gives us an opportunity to combine some of the ancient wisdom of traditional practices with modern technology that allows us to combine all three of those. Um, and one of the reasons that, that modern agrochemical agriculture became so entrenched in the 20th century is that it worked really well on land that was already degraded. 
and so if you look at the adoption of fertilizers in the Western world, um, it came in at a time when people in the 19th century were complaining that crop yields were, were decreasing over what their grandparents had been able to grow. Mm. Why? Because they'd been tilling the soil too long without, without rebuilding the organic matter and doing the regenerative aspects that could help replenish it. So I think we're, we're kind of at a point where we can look back at lessons through history and we can embrace modern technology and we need to think about what the path forward is to best integrate that so we can both feed and nourish the world in a resilient manner today. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you give examples. So the question I always ask myself is, you know, with, with, with dealing, um, I mean, those of us who are sort of trying to push a different type of uh, food production or health system, we're obviously against a, a huge, you know, wall of lobbyists and financial interests and political uh, power behind it. Um, but you give several examples in your book of farmers, so of, of this growing movement amongst farmers and um, that, can you expand on this? So to, for for the listener to get some idea of how realistic is that? Is, is, is that just something that somebody could say, yeah, these academics, you know, they come up with these ideas that are not realistic, it can't really be. Um, how, how realistic is this and, and to what degree is it already happening? Yeah, I mean, Probably, if, if your listeners haven't already heard of this farmer, his whole his story kind of answers your whole question. There, there's a farmer in North Dakota. His name is Gabe Brown, and he was uh, he was the best of a conventional farmer some time ago. You know, his story. He 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 tells a story that goes like this: I used to wake up every morning and think about what I was going to go out into my fields and on my farm and kill because that's what a farmer does you uh you 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 kill things that are you know after your animals or after your crops and for whatever reason gabe was um experienced several weather events these happened to be hailstorms that wiped out crops in a number of sequential four seasons and Gabe is running out of money. He uh, is pushed to the brink. He's about to go bankrupt and he has no money to buy inputs. And so he thinks, well, okay, you know, I'm, uh, you know, but I still am a farmer. So what am I going to do? And I think he probably had been thinking about this for a long time, seeing his, you know, the balance in his checking account going in the wrong direction. And he, and one thing about um, farmers, and, and I don't know, I'd say it's certainly true for American farmers, they're, they're amongst some of the, the most smart and innovative people I know. They, they, they sort of follow this, um, this phrase, you know, you do what you can with what you have at the time. And that's what Gabe did. And so he, I think he started out like planting a cover crop or something like that, because there was no money for fertilizer that year and he didn't do great with his crop but it also he didn't continue to sort of plummet down into the black hole of of debt and then he began to um, talk to other regenerative farmers who probably maybe even at that time were not calling themselves regenerative but they were managing to wean themselves off of these inputs and thereby save money and they would keep innovating season after season. And 
how long ago would you say Gabe started all of that? A decade, maybe a decade? It was in the 90s, I think. Okay, in the 90s. So, so the numbers have only grown, Emeryn. And one thing about the pandemic and inflation and how much more everything is costing and shortages now, uh, I think if you talk to your typical farmer, these would be huge motivators for changing their behavior and their practices right now because the fertilizer is like the bread and butter of a conventional farmer. And none of them like hearing about fertilizer prices that are two and three and four times more than they were, you know, even a couple of years ago. So they're they're kind of freaking out, you know, unless they have a huge bank account or lots of loans that can purchase these things. So Maybe the silver lining in all of this for the, the growing regenerative movement is that crisis, much like game experience, but for different reasons, crisis is a, can be a great motivator of behavior change. Yeah, and what we found in, in interviewing farmers, both for this book and the previous book, Growing a Revolution, um, farmers who had adopted these regenerative practices um, after they had rebuilt the health and fertility of their soil, were, were able to so reduce their fertilizer purchases and their pesticide purchases and their diesel purchases, because by not tilling, they're driving their tractors across their fields less, um, that they were actually quite profitable relative to their conventional neighbors, because once their soil was healthy again, they could grow comparable yields with less chemical inputs. Um, and that made for a better bottom line. And that's really what I think turned us into the optimists that these kinds of ideas would catch on and spread. Because if they work economically for the farmers, they're gonna to talk to each other. They're gonna notice what's happening yeah. on neighboring farms. Um, you know, that's a recipe for success. Um, and so we've spent some time interviewing farmers in, around the world. We've talked to people in Central Africa, Central America, across North America. And I think that the specific, as Anne alluded to earlier, the specific practices that one might use to rebuild soil and a profitable, healthy farm um, don't translate from region to region, but the general principles do in terms of cultivating the beneficial life in the soil, not disturbing it, planting cover crops, growing a diversity of things, not just corn and soybeans. Um, and there's, I think we'll, we'll see growing adoption of it, but it's, it, it's very difficult to ask anybody to change the way they've been taught to do something or the way they've done it for decades. What gives me a lot of uh, hope in the future for the future of agriculture is with the students I see coming through the university where I teach and the students I talk to at universities I go speak at, many of the young, uh, young people interested in agriculture today are interested in a different way of doing agriculture and in a more regenerative style that can, that can help not only um, uh, restore health to the soil, but provide people with, with something better to eat as well. I mean, one of the most important things to me seems to be the educational part at this stage, because so many people, when, when, you know, when, when you mention this word regenerative organic, most people say, oh yeah, I, I'm buying organic food. I said, no, I, I mean regenerative organic, but what is that? You know, so probably 90% of the people that, that I talk to you know, respond like that. And uh, I think this definitely needs to change. I mean, hopefully your, your book will have an impact. <clears throat> um, and and, and there, are, there are several other people have written books about it or speak about it. It's, but I think it's gonna take a significant amount of, um, um, you know, education really t together with, I mean, changing, 
um, changing behaviors. Like one thing I, I remember, I was invited once for the first book on a on a book tour to um, to this college in Iowa, Grinnell College. Mm -hmm. And first, I thought, yeah, I don't have time to go to to Iowa, you know, for this. But then I actually was really happy to to go there because these students were extremely interested. And in my conversations with them, because it's surrounded by all the farmers, that if you had more time, you know, we would arrange um, meetings with these farmers because they are extremely interested in it. So mm -hmm. it, there's, there's clearly, there's an interest, um, but I think there needs to be the, the connection also with the people that have the information and can really provide uh, insights and models, you know, to move that. Yeah, you know, I think part of it, Emran, like you had asked, like, what, why don't more people know about the kinds of things that, that we're writing about and what your food ate? And I think um, part of that has to do with the specialization in science that Dave referred to, which is important. That gives us a deep understanding of particular aspects of things. And it helps us, um, for example, you know, ground some of these traditional practices and why, why, why they are working and in combination why they're working. I think what would be, and just this response that you had at Grinnell, I think something that would help considerably on that front would be if there were more interdisciplinary uh, gatherings or efforts or uh, I'm not sure you know, what else to call it, but if you had people like yourself who have you know, a firm grasp on the effects of diet on, you know, in particular gut health and the microbiome, then there's people like us who can talk about, this is what we know, this is the science behind how crops interact with their microbiome, that you're then putting these beads on a string to help people understand, you know, why organic, you know, isn't good enough, why, technology is not the answer for poor soil health. And that people are busy, right? They don't, <laughs> they're, they're busy and not everyone is, is, you know, has a driving curiosity or is scientifically minded. But I think if you talk about these things and you communicate them to people and certainly people who have any kind of chronic disease or sickness or malady, they wanna know why they're sick and they don't like being that way, none of us. None of us like feeling ill or bad. That, that I think that's one way of um, communicating why this stuff really is important. And, and uh, it, I know that whenever I get around people who can help me put the pieces of, um, of a bigger idea together, my understanding grows by leaps and bounds. And I, I start to have those aha moments. I mean, in writing this book, there were lots of those kinds of moments in traversing the literature from agronomy to immunology to animal science, uh, all of it. it. It just goes, aha, aha, aha. Yeah. What, what I often run into is, you know, that the main interest like you give a talk about the complexity of the, you know, the brain gut microbiome system and how it's linked to the soil. And, and then after 45 minutes of presentation, the hand goes up and says, so what, what probiotic do you recommend? You know, so, <laughs> so this, this, I, I know that question will always be the first one. And uh, I think it points towards 
this phenomenon that you know consumers unfortunately at the moment are still they're, they're obsessed with getting the right food and doing something for your gut health um whatever they that expression covers um because people put in a lot more than just the gut the gut health now means health in general you know um but rather than you know asking deeper questions so this is definitely a challenge that that all of us have um, to sell this to the consumer and connect it to this affects you personally you know um, yeah I, I mean the one the, the one argument that i always use and you have this you have a chapter on the phytochemicals as well i've gotten really fascinated with that topic i, I knew nothing about didn't even know what polyphenols are like five years ago you know it but found that one of the most amazing uh, molecules in nature that the plants use them to for self-defense and health and then the microbes play a role in helping the plants to reduce them and then when we eat the plants these same molecules help our gut microbiome and our health so that i think is one of the most beautiful stories of interconnectedness in in, in nature you know and so this this is what i'm trying to sell as much as possible and 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 you can expand on this more i mean we 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 get this beautiful product um in these upscale supermarkets that look bigger and um shinier than ever before and but two two things are missing the flavor is missing and um you know the other thing is these the the, the concentration of these molecules so the polyphenols is 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 missing so people think yeah i have to take my antioxidant supplement um, i don't have to worry about you know what, what kind of uh, if i buy these vegetables or, or fruits i get enough for those molecules so that i think is a huge gap in the knowledge and, and maybe you want to sort of expand a little bit more on this because you've writ written be beautifully about this in both of your in an earlier book and yeah, I, I'll just start with a, a short comment, and then uh, hand off to Anne. I'm sure, I'm sure she has more to say about polyphenols and, and phytochemicals. Um, but I, that that sort of connection that you that you were um, uh, identifying of why plants make phytochemicals, what they do for the plants, what the microbes then do with those as it moves into um, into the human food chain and, and what happens when we eat them and they get changed by our microbiota into compounds that are beneficial for us. I mean, that really illustrates the sort of, if you think about that through evolutionary terms and sort of run the clock a long time backwards, it actually makes a lot of sense about how that works in terms of, well, what was available to eat? How did plants survive? How did animals then, you know, survive for millions of years eating plants? How have we survived so long to become the dominant species reshaping the planet? Um, you know, if those things, if, if the, if, if what our food ate was not good for us in natural systems, we probably wouldn't be where we are today. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where with the title, we're trying to encourage people to think, you know, not just what, what's on your plate, but what, what's on your plate actually ate to, to get to that state and what it means for us. And, and we didn't really know that much about phytochemicals when we started into researching, you know, this series of books. But it's been just a series of eye-opening connections, as, as Anne alluded to, that's been fascinating to, to dig into. 
And on the educational level, I think there's really sort of two levels of education that we need to be emphasizing um, as a community. And one is the consumer education, essentially trying to connect people who, who aren't going to be microbiologists or agronomists or geologists about why these kinds of connections are important. And that's a big purpose of why you know, we would write books like this, is to try and simplify the technical and make it digestible pretty much to, to you know, anyone at, at a high school level. Um, um, but the other level is in terms of rethinking, um, you know, agricultural and medical research to focus on questions that these kind of connections actually open up, because there's kind of a dearth of, of studies that focus on those connections. There's lots of specialized studies on pieces of it, but if what we're right about and what we're writing, there's a lot of room for some more synthetic research at systems levels to try and look at those connections as well. Yeah. And uh, it, I'm thinking about the number one question that you get, like what probiotics should I take? And I'm, I'm sure you also get what kind of diet should I eat? And I know you did a, your newsletter a while back, or maybe not, I don't know, your paleo or keto or this thing or that thing. And I, I kind of, let's just brush all of that. Let's park that. Let's go put that in a parking lot. And then let's return to sort of main stage with this idea which goes like this. Um, I, I really think we'd all be better off if, you know, we understand that there's this milieu of molecules and compounds that affect our health. And where I'd like us to go is we need them because it keeps various biological processes normal and functional, just like we want them, just like we need them. And that all adds up to you know, for shorthand, I'll just call peace in the body. That's P-E-A-C-E. -E. That amounts to peace in the body, normal, functional, biological processes. The foundation of that, what's underpinning that is a bunch of molecules and compounds and the way all of these receptors on our cells are interpreting and acting on all of those things. But we're going to we know enough about that to know that what we really need to be doing is not just restoring that one organism in the human microbiome or in the plant microbiome. We need to be setting up the processes that make conditions for all of that, you know, as good as they can be. Because when that's coherent and it's filled with integrity and the community is functioning, we know there's I would say this, that when all of that is happening, we hardly know of a case of ill health. And that that's a better way to think about it because one thing for sure, the internet and social media has done, has turned us all into rabbits, diving down holes, looking for scraps of information that are like the holy grail. And, and that's the wrong approach. I think by now, in, in sort of human history, I think it's intuitive, intuitive to everybody that we are indeed a part of nature and a part of this nature, these normal functioning biological processes. And so I almost think, you know, an answer to every, cause we get questions, what should I do to my soil? Like you get, what should I do to my gut? And so I like to say, Here's what you should be doing. You should be thinking about how you're gonna feed your soil microbiome, and then you're gonna let the plant take care of the rest of it because it's got an arsenal of um, phytochemicals and signaling and communication things that are going on with its microbiome, and you're gonna let it 
do the work, you're going to support the process of all of that happening. Yeah, so it's a very systems biological way, you know, because I, I sort of run in, into this as well in, in these worlds in the microbiome um, domain. So on the one side are the, the top-notch scientists who do the molecular work on them. The goal is always to identify this one strain and this one molecule that you can get uh, into intellectual property protection on. And that's the goal. So, and then the, you have all these startups, no matter how unlikely it is that that direction will ever generate anything significant. It's amazing to me how much, how many billions are being invested into these undertakings. And then the, the, the more you get into it, uh, for me, it's been, you know, I always say the answer is um, none of these approaches is likely to, to bring any major breakthroughs, maybe for a particular disease, like for Parkinson's, maybe that, that's potentially possible, not for general health, but for general health for the next 10 years or maybe longer, the main thing is you have to optimize the dietary aspect because everything is in there. You know, nature's wisdom is in that diet, the way it's, and you have to take into account how it's produced and what. So um, if, if all these billions would focus on that approach, you know, and propagation of that information, I think it would do a lot more for, for human health than what we're seeing now, you know, with this uh, uh, startup driven progress or. Yeah. yeah. And just one thing about on polyphenols again, because I like that you're fascinated with them. Um, and and I, I realized this later on, maybe in the middle or even after writing the book, and that we talk a lot about phytochemicals um, as defensive compounds and as protective compounds. And they certainly are. There's no doubt that many phytochemicals play that role in our bodies and in plant body you know, they're outside, they're living in these really extreme environments, you know, sun and cold and everything like that. But then I was reading up more on phytochemicals and I went, oh yeah, this is really a part of the story that's been neglected. And many of these polyphenols, they also serve, or maybe in some cases solely serve as uh, communicating with particular microbes in the soil. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it that way, yeah, that also probably serves some kind of defensive role, but it's not the direct way in which, say, beta carotene mm -hmm. protects against UV radiation in a plant. And, and I started to think about that, and I went, oh, yeah, it's now more like when a plant is producing a diverse amount and an abundance of polyphenols, the conversation is a level with the microbes. There's no words that have been dropped out. They're talking a common language. And moreover, both the plant and the microbe can act on that communication and do the appropriate thing. So there's no equivalent of being, you know, the immune system is under operating or over operating. It's right where you want it. And so it's this whole communication aspect that's, I think, part of um, part of just the normal biological process. And we don't, it's really hard for us human beings to think about plants talking with microbes. But I don't know how, you know, how much better to, to put it than that, because that's what's happening. It's about 
a communication and a language in which both parties know what the other one means, then they act on it, then they can get back together and say, we do what we said we were gonna do. Do we get the effect that we wanted? If not, we dial it up, we dial it down. And this is happening in, you know, not over the course of, you know, these things between plants and microbes are, you know, minute to minute, second to second. And um, it's good enough for me to know that uh, you can get lost in the details of that. It's just for me to know, I want that conversation being really tight, really robust, and most important, really adaptable, can pivot on a dime. Oh, we've got this situation over here. Now we've got to change this around. And that, that to me is you know, more important than knowing about um, you know, a molecule or a compound that's doing this or that thing. Because we'll all get lost in that. And like you've just said, that we've got the entrepreneurial capitalistic crowd. They're, they're chasing multiple there's, things like that. And there's been parallel efforts in soil science to try and find the right like you know, microbe to put into the soil to do things to, to crop production. And one of the troubling things that they've encountered in many cases, though not all, is that um, you know, a, a microbe that may work really well in the lab to do something, when you go put it out in the jungle of the soil, it has to compete in an ecological context and system. It's not operating in a vacuum. And I think that you know, much like the human gut and the soil and the parallels between them, if we think of, of them as ecological systems, you know, it's more about how you, how you sort of influence the inputs and the cycling and the throughputs to them as opposed to sort of individual members of them because they act as ensembles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is definitely, <clears throat> definitely a lesson that I learned um, that, you know, looking at the interconnectedness of all these systems in a, in a, you know, systems, biological or ecological ways is really the only way to understand it. I mean, you, you cannot, there's thousands of each of these molecules, like with the microbes, there's, you know, there's thousands of species and there's for each species, hundreds of strains, you know, and each of those make hundreds of molecules and metabolites thousands of metabolites <clears throat> there's, there's just no not a simple way of understand what each one of those things and and they're not designed to work in isolation i mean a pathogen is designed to uh, to do one particular thing but not the totally different thing of, of health uh, maintaining systems you know which always is this topic i found particularly intriguing and and we don't have to discuss that here. <clears throat> it's this whole thing about the bitter taste receptors. Um, so there's groups, some of my colleagues at UCLA have done some of pioneering work in this and not the bitter taste receptors on the tongue, which are easily explainable, you, you know, you wanna, but but those um, those gene transcripts, um, you mentioned this in your book, is it 30 or? About are, 20, yeah, over 25, yeah. Or, or, that are expressed in, in, in the gut and, and we still don't know what the function is, you know? Um, so, I mean, the polyphenol molecules which stimulate the, the bitter taste receptors on your tongue, certainly an intriguing possibility, not explored, but I think it's a very intriguing possibility that this may be another hidden effect on 
I mean, why would you have 25 receptors there? You know, if it's not. Yeah. And, right. And, and what that brings up is the whole connection to flavor. And we've all had those like flavorless tomatoes that you occasionally run across. Yeah. Uh, and there's actually the paper, I think it was in science, wasn't it? That, that basically looked at, well, what is responsible for the flavor profile of tomatoes and what's sort of missing in the flavorless ones? And it turns out that it maps into, um, you know, different phytochemicals. Um, and if you look at the kinds of things that, uh, we can find studies that document that sort of uh, uh, conventional agricultural production practices today decrease in foods. It's micronutrients, phytochemicals, and then in meat and dairy, the, the fat profile. Um, and, you know, those things relate, if those things relate to flavor, it gets back to how it is you were mentioning earlier about animals and native ability to, to essentially, you know, harvest for themselves a diet that's healthy for them. And there's a, a hypothesis called the flavor feedback mechanism that sort of get, that we go into the book that in the book that looks at how that works and how that has evolved. And if you think about that in the human context with those bitter taste receptors helping to guide what we eat, as well as uh, the implications of if conventional farming has changed the flavor profile of things. And then you add on to that, well, what does food processing do? it kind of breaks the link between what's in your food and what your tongue experiences and tells your brain to eat more of um, or, what, or what you enjoy. And that was a real eye-opener to me in terms of thinking about what is it about um, you know, ultra-processed foods that have been stripped down to their you know, to components then reassembled with other flavors. <clears throat> it's kind of breaking the information link that your body, that human bodies long used to navigate towards a healthy diet. Um, and I think that's an area that um, is really relatively unexplored uh, as well in terms of, but you put all those things together and it's like, oh, maybe we have a case for rethinking about how we farm in terms of what is getting into us. Mm. No, that's, I mean, there's a lot of in intriguing speculations that you could make, you know, like with the bitter taste receptors, it, maybe this was a way to, you know, apples before they have been engineered to have more sugar and sweetness and 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 less polyphenols, which are bitter, you know, which, which are not necessarily the most attractive flavor that of certain food items you wouldn't, you would eat less because they, they have that, that bitter dimension in it, you know, I mean, who knows, yeah. you know, if, if, yeah. if you eliminate that thing that we don't like about them, that we may be eliminating, uh, I mean, we may be increasing our voracious appetite and, you know, create things like food addiction. And Yeah, yeah. And I think it is really interesting. I think what's going on with the number of bitter taste receptors, say, for example, as compared to any of the other ones, you know, sweet, there's only, there's just several different types of taste receptors, umami, maybe, I think half a dozen or so, maybe. And it, it makes perfect sense to me because um, phytochemicals, as you had mentioned, th there are tens of thousands of different phytochemicals. And because of the, the range of things that they do in the human body, we've got to have, human biology's got to have some way of kind of sorting through those, all those tens of thousands mm. of phytochemicals and be doing feedback with our brain and our gut to say, aha, less of, you know, that one is, is quite toxic. It's okay if you're dealing with a gut parasite, mm -hmm. which is what, you know, these chimpanzees will do mm -hmm. with some of their um, food selections. This one, less toxic to pathogens, you know, enhances this other thing. And of course, this is, none of this is operating at a conscious level, 
this is all about that the flavor feedback hypothesis. So just because of the, the great number of phytochemicals out there in foods that have comprised the human diet over our evolution, we need that kind of uh, you know, infrastructure, biological infrastructure, if we're gonna fully both take advantage of all of those phytochemicals, as well as uh, we are all over the planet now, our species. And you know, you've got really different plants in uh, say Sweden than in Tonga or in Hawaii. So that's another reason I think we've got this large number of receptors is depends what kind of environment you're in and what kind of plants are available there. And you want to be able to survive in, you know, Sweden and Tonga equally well. And, and so this is how our, our sort of innate body wisdom um, fed into that, so to speak. We could, we could, you know, we're on a podcast, I've got air quotes here, you know, we can read we can read the plant foods. Our, bi our biology can read the plant foods and take in what you know the Tongan body needs or the Swedish body or whatever. Yeah, really interesting point. <clears throat> yeah, no, this is definitely a, a it's a fascinating topic. I mean, we wouldn't need to talk about it <clears throat> if we didn't have these crises. On the one side, the <laughs> epidemic of <clears throat> of of non-transmissible chronic diseases, you know, which we've sort of forgotten about because we're more concerned about the pandemic, but <clears throat> that, and, and, and medicine and, and pharmaceutical industry have learned <clears throat> to manage this, this, uh, this epidemic without really taking care of it, you know, which just keeps us from dying. Uh, and on the other hand, we have this, this time bomb of, of the soil, de soil degradation, which I was going to ask you a question about that is if you, if you would extrapolate, so let's say, and this extrapolation happens with climate change, and I, I think um, we're still underestimating the speed of how all this stuff is going to happen to us. But in terms of soil degradation, what what do you think if we continue the way we we grow our food currently? What's going to happen in fifty years? What's going to happen in hundred years? Is this going to be pandemics of starvation that's going to happen because we can't produce enough food? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, there's the pace at which the UN uh, has reported back in 2015 that we're losing agricultural productivity at due to soil degradation is about 0.3% per year. So 1% every three years, which means that, um, you know, over the course of the, of this present century, we would be on track to reduce our food production by about a third. Um, that, you know, and that's at a time when our population is growing by projected to grow by about a third. That's, you know, the right number and totally the wrong direction. Um, so it's not so much that we will totally run out of soil. And there's been some people have tried to you know, argue that, that, that that's not going to happen. Um, but there's regions around the world that are at greater risk to degrading their soil enough to take out an even greater share of their other productivity. And many of those are semi-arid regions. Um, sort of what you might call brittle or fragile environments. And there's other areas that have, you know, really deep, thick piles of a naturally very fertile soil that you just need the biology to help unlock the minerals and get them into the plants. Mm -hmm. And those are areas like the American Midwest, uh, Ukraine, for example, the big, the rich black soils there, uh, and parts of China, uh, all of which are areas where back in the last ice age, a lot of the material scraped off the poles, got pushed south and blown around into thick piles of really nice soil. 
So there's some places on earth that could you could farm, you know, uh, in a very poor manner for a very long time. Um, and there's other places, uh, like many areas in the tropics, where it just takes five or 10 years of poor farming to literally destroy the soil. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a really variable thing. So the, real, the short answer to your question would have been, it depends where you are. And it would it, the, the problem, the global problem of soil degradation will probably manifest in ways that most people recognize as regional food crises going forward in this century. But you know, it, it would grow into a much bigger problem for the whole populace going further into the future than that. Um, but it's a problem we actually have time to solve. Um, it's you know, it's as important, but maybe not quite as pressing as the climate problem. Um, but what gives me great hope that we can solve it is I think we now know enough to identify how to do it. It can work for farmers economically to do it. And there's all these ancillary side benefits, uh, such as storing more carbon in the soil and benefiting biodiversity on a quarter of the world's continents that are farms. And I think growing uh, healthier food for a populace that um, uh, could use it. Yeah, I mean, this, this, you know, in some ways would be a beautiful way to, to end our, our conversation. I mean, the one question that I had kind of related to what that question, that single question that I was always asked about, you know, after my uh, presentations, a consumer walking into, um, into a supermarket, how that consumer has already been bombarded with mm -hmm. uh, on the internet, what's good and bad and what's toxic and what's, um, so it's already pre-programmed. Pre um, then that person walks in the supermarket, how, how should that individual make his or her choices what to buy? Yeah. That, that I think it boils down to this is sort of. Yeah, I, I think, um, okay, first of all, never go to the grocery store hungry. <laughs> that, that, that really is, your flavor feedback loop is going strong when you walk into a grocery store really hungry. You'll find yourself, I think it's probably happened to all of us, you get to the checkout and you're like, or more like you get home, you're like, wow, why did I put this in the grocery cart and this and this and this? It's, you know, human biology is a really powerful thing and it drives our behavior. So don't go to the store hungry is number one. I'd say shop the perimeter of the grocery store first, whether you're hungry or not. And you'll find things in your cart that are starting to add up to meals. Like, oh, I've got the ingredients now for this thing or that thing. And, and then when you do enter the middle aisles of the grocery store, that to me is a place where you shop for your staples. That's not where you shop for meals or things that you're gonna directly eat. It's your staples. So by that, I mean, um, your, your oils and whatever, you know, if you're a baker, then you need flour and you need sweeteners and you need spices. If you're more on the savory side, you're going to cruise the herb aisle and, and get all of your herbs. So you're picking out of those middle aisles things that are a part of recipes. They're, they're ingredients, just like the stuff on the outside. And that, that staying away from the, the ready-to-eat stuff is... Is, is really, you know, your big challenge in, in the grocery store. The middle aisles aren't all evil, um, but they are very, uh, as you had mentioned in your question, they're bombarding us. They're, they're bombarding our brains. And that is, um, 
infecting our flavor feedback <laughs> processes. And so we want to keep that, we want to keep that stuff out. Okay, I, I think with that practical advice, I mean, we close our conversation. It was, I, I could go on for a long time. Um, absolutely fascinating. Maybe we can do another one. And <laughs> yeah, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Happy to do it anytime. Okay, let's do that. Okay, okay. good. Thank you. All right, Amran, take, okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.